Blog Talk Radio. Parenting Your Challenging Child. I'm joined by our Director of Outreach at Lives in the Balance, Kim Hopkins-Betts. Kim, are you there? I am. Good morning. How are you? I'm all right, although the snow we're about to get is freaking me out a little bit, but uh, it'll be okay. (laughs) I think we're all a little freaked. Stella, you're on the line too, one of our parents, yes? Good morning. How are you? Doing well, thank you. We are in spring mode here. The daffodils have opened up. We're jealous. Oh, wow. <laughs> we are. <laughs> um, here in the Northeast, we're probably going to get another foot of snow tomorrow. What, what's that? Sorry. Oh, I was just mentioning that Jennifer will be joining us, but she is um, held up at work a little bit, but she'll be on. Got it. Great. Um, yeah, spring is... Uh, going out like with a bang here, um, wow. but you know what? The radio program goes on no matter what the weather, right? And that's right. To work on flexibility because, you know, you have to be flexible when you get a foot of snow in March. You kind of do. You've got to be flexible when you get, um, when you're speaking in Syracuse, New York in a blizzard as I was on Friday. Um, what a wonderful group we had there. A bunch of people uh, got out there in the snow. They basically said that this was nothing, um, but all my flights were canceled, so I had to drive back to Portland, Maine from Syracuse, which is not that big of a deal, but um, we'll see how I fare tomorrow morning coming back from New York City. That's going to wow. be a little nice. Yeah. Fortunately, there's mm-hmm. trains from New York City. There are not trains from Syracuse or any that get there very fast, but that's not what we're here to talk about this morning. Let's talk about <laughs> parenting your challenging child. Do either of you have anything you'd like to start with today? We have some emails that have come in that we can respond to as well, but anything that you want to start with today? Well, Kim, I think I don't know if we necessarily have to start with this or if there's an opportunity uh, during the show, too. But, Kim, maybe you could talk a little bit about the activity that's been going on on the B-Team page on Facebook. Do you mean as far as some of the recent events in Florida and such? Or do well, you mean yeah, that's been the hottest topic, I think, of late? <laughs> right, right. I think when when we as parents and, and caregivers are thrown into the you know, the honest reality um, that is our current situation, um, we're seeing a lot of, of frustration reflected in, in the B team. Um, and so just, just to talk a little bit to hopefully help people to remember to come at all concerns with communication and a sense of collaborative flexibility. <laughs> you, um, you guys have me in the dark a little bit here. Let's start there. I think that though that I'm in the okay. dark a little bit, so you'll have to fill me in on the details. Okay. Well, Kim, sure. you want to give him the general scope? 
Yes, and um, <laughs> I you might have to fill me in a little bit too, Stella, because there's been a lot to keep up mm-hmm. with. But um, I think we've seen everything expressed from fear for one's own children and what the future might hold for them in terms of um, seeing some concerning behaviors now and hoping it doesn't escalate to anything near tragedy. I think we've seen a lot of debate about um, the gun issue in terms of access, in terms of what kind was used and what kind it wasn't, in terms of arming teachers or not. Um, you know, and there's the B team, Dr. Green and I have always said the B team's a little bit like a social experiment where we're trying to encourage the adults as the team members to also use the model with one another when there's disagreement or things happening. And when when you add the kind of emotion that has been elicited by current events into the mix, it's been hard, harder than yes. usual for people to use the model with one another. And there's been um, a lot of tension because of it. And, um, you know, I think that we've, Things are going better in these last few days, as far as what I can tell, for the most part. Um, But there's just, you know, a lot of concerns expressed on on all sides. And, um, yeah, I mean, have you seen anything else other than what I sort of summarized? No, those those are the two biggies. And then I, I think the only other one that I have been seeing pretty consistently, maybe not through the original post, but it comes up in the threads, is the the idea of expectations that's been you know how do you how do you stay true to expectations while while implementing the the model and you know when when do you go into plan c mode and all that so i keep i keep seeing the word expectations and lots of question marks definitely so that gives all you a right. little idea that's so, you know, here's what um, troubles me most, and clearly uh, the event that occurred in Florida, the tragedy that occurred in Florida, is likely to have emotions running high. It was a terrible thing. Um, I was watching my 17-year-old son walk off to school this morning, and I was thinking to myself, what if I was one of those parents who, walked, who saw their kid walk off to school um, in Florida and never saw them again? And that's the reality of the tragedy. Um, and we really have to put ourselves in the shoes of those people and their loved ones who are either seriously wounded or no longer with us. Um, it's a horrible thing. And horrible things cause emotions to run high, but horrible things shouldn't define the discussion. Emotions mm-hmm. running high shouldn't define the discussion. Um, and I worry that, especially on the gun issue, that the most extreme views may be defining the debate, when the reality yeah. is I think that we can all agree on a few things. Um, Nicholas Cruz should have never been able to get a hold of that kind of weapon. Mm-hmm. Um, and that reasonable people should be able to come together to address the concern that 
Nicholas Cruz should not have been able to get a weapon like that and also address the concern that many people feel that the Second Amendment and their gun rights are um, very important to them. There has got to be a way to come up with a collaborative and mutually satisfactory solution to that problem, but not if the extremes define the debate. Correct. No right or wrong here, as there in as with every Plan B. It's no right or wrong. It's not about power. Um, this is about can we come up with a reasonable solution so that kids stop getting hurt at school. I think it can be done, but um, it would take political courage to do it, and it would take flexibility on the part of the interested parties to accomplish the mission. As with every time we are trying to solve a problem collaboratively, Um, I think it's doable. I think it's doable on the very vast majority of problems that we face. Um, This is an emotional one because people are dying. And it seems like that urgency should help us collaborate more, but that urgency actually seems to cause people to become more entrenched in their positions. And that's, by the way, also not a terribly unusual thing that we see when we're working with kids and adults. The more emotional the issue, the more entrenched the positions become. And that's very counterproductive. And it's a real shame because it's going to happen again. Um, There are kids who are planning this right now. There are tons of them who are thinking about it right now. And um, it's a real pity that um, the political courage isn't there to try to forge a solution to this problem. There's my two cents. I like them. Sobering. I like your two cents. <laughs> Sobering for sure. You know, the, the, my observation is that, um, you know, just having experienced last spring being, you know, in in a room full of educators um, working, trying to get to a plan that could work for my son and the heat of the moment just kept coming back and kept coming back and kept coming back. Um, the one the one observation I would add to all this um, is that when it gets this heightened, when when the discussion is being defined by emotions running high, it seems to me like um, an immediate solution that fixes everything is what gets asked for, <laughs> and that's mm-hmm. not point. what's going to work. <clears throat> It's going to take work. It's going to take time. It's going to take developing one skill at a time. And that starts with identifying what is the skill that we can address right now and start there. Well, and I think that if we make this only about guns, then we are being very short-sighted. I think it is partially about guns, but I think it's a lot about some other things as well. And those are the things I talked about in the op-ed that I wrote for time um, that people can still find on the homepage of the Lives in the Balance website. Um, There's a lot of things that have made schools 
um, less kid-friendly, less conducive to the teaching of skills and the solving of problems, more likely to have uh, at-risk kids not succeed. And we need to take a look at those things too, but we also have to remember that schools are just a microcosm of society. So this is not school blaming, this is not gun blaming, this is taking a real hard look at the factors that have led to this problem and putting our heads together to try to solve it in a way that is mutually respectful and that addresses the concerns of all parties. I am, as I said, quite convinced that that's doable. Um, I'm sorry that it's not happening. The op-ed piece is, is wonderful. Thank you for that. Thanks. The only thing I didn't like about it was that I wanted it to be called 19 Years to Prevent a Tragedy, and the headline was instead about expulsion. Um, mm. You know, the thing that troubles me the most, as I may have said in the op-ed, I haven't read it since I wrote it, was that what people are primarily focused on is what happened that day or in the few months that preceded that day. The officer who didn't run into the building, the FBI that blew its leads, the local police department that may have missed the boat on some tips, um, took 19 years to get to the point that a tragedy occurred. There were many opportunities during those 19 years, and it appears, I don't know him obviously, but it appears that um, Nicholas Cruz was not an easy kid to help. But as I've been telling a lot of people, those of us who work with very behaviorally challenging kids, whether we work with them in an outpatient setting or an inpatient setting or in a prison or in a school, we know kids like Nicholas Cruz. We know the trajectory that led to the tragedy very well. We know that it was preventable. We know that it was unnecessary. And focusing on what happened that day or in the few months that preceded it is missing the boat. Agreed. Definitely. Interesting that you wanted to call it that because I don't know if that line was in the op-ed or in maybe the Nova Lens piece you did, but that was the line it was. that stood out to me as like, okay, I was like, that is that summarizes it all right there. <clears throat> so, yes, I also want to pass on the thanks of many people that we had messaging us through Facebook. Uh, commenting on the post and also emailing us to the website, thanking you for writing that piece and and putting things into the CPS lens perspective. So passing that on. Good, to I you. wasn't aware of that. So Thank what you. a um, what a terrible thing to be a parent who has seen your kid for the last time when you send them off to place to a place that is supposed to be safe. That's just as bad as it gets. Ugh. Yeah. <laughs> Heavy. So I'm really proud as well of the students from um, the school, the high school in Parkland, um, who've taken a stand. And I fear that as the news media cycle shifts and as our short attention spans kick in, I really hope that their voices don't get lost and that they'll keep at it. Um, I know that many of the parents whose children um, were involved in a similar tragedy in Newtown 
have really been very active in trying to do something about the problem that took the lives of their kids. And I'm sure they, better than anybody else, can empathize with the parents uh, and other loved ones who've lost family members. Yes. Let me give the phone number for people to call in if they'd like to. I'm not sure we, we can talk about anything, but did we? But the phone number is 347-994-2981 and press the number 1. Are there other things from the B team that we should be talking about um, before we move into there, the uh, email that have piled up since last month? There was a topic from the B team that we um, – we had a lot of callers last time, so we were only able to get to at the very end that we could certainly continue. But the um, the idea of how to get your co-parent on board and what to do when your co-parent is plan A and thinks that um, CPS isn't going to work and isn't worth trying and all of that, there had prior to this tragedy, there had been a lot of posting about uh, frustrations around that, and we just touched on it a bit at the end of last program, so maybe that's where we can pick up. Uh, Sounds like a great place to pick up, and I don't know if Stella weighed in on that one, but she's got some experience there. Stella, do you want to start today? Well, sure. It's a a work in progress always, but, um, you know, I add the one of the first things that I noticed when I started getting to know the CPS model was that um, I had a lot of work to do myself before asking my son to start taking notice and start um, doing better with the development of his skills. And and as I mentioned the, the last call, I I am great implementing CPS with my explosive son, I am absolutely horrible with grown-ups with it, including my my dear, dear husband, um, my colleagues, and um, obviously the, the team at the school that I, I pulled my son out of last year because I just, I completely lost it. Um, so, yeah, we, you know, my husband um, has been, uh, doing better with um, joining me in the conversations regarding lagging skills and working on developing skills. And um, so and the, the wonderful thing is that as he has um, stepped into that lens shift um, a little bit more over the last few weeks, it's kind of, I don't know if it's coincidental or if it's partly because um, he's my husband has been uh, communicating better with our son, but our son has for the first time been saying things like, "I really don't like this part of my disability." He is he is on the autism spectrum. There's this part of my disability that's keeping me from from having success with grown-ups and with people that I disagree with. I really don't like this about myself, and I want to get better. So um, I think we're we're headed in a in a good direction, and I'm certainly working diligently to be more um, more careful with when I'm escalating and being able to hear the other person out. 
I'm I'm with you and and you know what you said a few minutes ago, Ross, about when emotions run high, that's when we become entrenched. Um, that probably describes the dynamic between myself and my husband. So he he would also be the one that I have the hardest time using the model with. Um, you know, uh, because of that emotional component. And, you know, I mean, he's an engineer. He's got an engineer's brain, right? It's a little bit different um, from mine. <laughs> and, um, yeah, there's some some very interesting conversations that we have about, you know, the way he thinks it works. And then he can kind of see that it didn't quite work for him the way he was brought up with Plan A, and it isn't working for our daughter in particular. And, um, you know, and then yet in the moment, that that seems to go out the window a lot of times. So, um, yeah, it's it's tough. <laughs> and that, of course, is why the CS model is so strongly oriented toward being proactive. It's very hard to do much that's rational in the heat of the moment. Um, so, um, you know, irrational heat-of-the-moment plan B doesn't really work very well. I would still take it over irrational plan A or plan A, period. But that's why such a huge part of the model is oriented toward um, identifying unsolved problems proactively and solving them in a planful, proactive way. It's because the heat of the moment is not ideal. Now, one thing I will say that I've seen frequently, and that is that there's no question that proactive plan B is the place to start, but um, and that emergency plan B is not going to be your best friend. But there are kids and families that I've worked with that um, when they, after some meaningful number of repetitions in proactive plan B, the muscle memory that comes by doing plan B proactively um, can sometimes serve them well should they find themselves in the heat of the moment. It's just that you don't want to make a habit of it. Um, you know, there's nothing like success to persuade a parent um, right. that um, this is a good way to go. The only problem with that is that, you know, Plan B is not 100% successful um, because of the population that it's most frequently applied to kids with social, emotional, and behavioral challenges. Um, what we're looking for is life to be better, but not for life to be perfect. We're looking for life to be a lot better. Um, but sometimes um, people feel need to return to their old plan A instincts when something isn't going well, and sometimes they point to that as evidence of the fact that plan B isn't working. Um, good to sometimes keep a record of all of the problems you've solved with plan B so that when people start thinking plan B isn't working, you've got a whole bunch of ones that you can point to that are examples of the fact that it actually worked very well. So the fact that things are not going well is not a good excuse to return to plan A it's, or an indication that plan B is not working. It just says that we've got some more problems to solve. I think it was my second time calling in way back when where I had I had called in the first time, started started practicing implementing proactive plan B. It worked so well that by the time that I called back, I said, I took my hands off the wheel and I'm having to start all over again. 
because it, it, I just went on automatic pilot and I thought, oh, it's fixed, yay. And then I, I reverted. Hard to get rid of those old instincts. And by the way, hard to get rid of a way of thinking that somebody has been returning to and finding useful sometimes for 30, 40, 50 years. Those are instincts and ways of thinking that can be worked on, but they are not instincts and ways of thinking that tend to go away overnight or in one fell swoop. Right. And the principles of the model can certainly be applied to co-parent discussions, um, especially that proactive one. piece of advice we got years ago was, you know, have regular business meetings. And yes, about the finances and, and how the house runs and all that, but also about the kids and carve out in the very frenzy pace of life, carve out that time to have that proactive time between co-parents to figure out, you know, what are we working on? Um, You know, why would we want to work on it this way? What do we hope to see? You know, who's going to take the lead and all these pieces um, and, and work the model within each other and also call out what are the concerns about doing it that way and figure out how to meet those concerns. So that's something that's worked for us anyhow, when it's working. (laughs) Beautiful. So I hope that helps in the B team. The, you know, I think that people who are um, fans of CPS and fans of plan B and have found it to be useful, sometimes lose sight of just how long it took them to get good at plan B and feel comfortable with it and start to see things through this set of lenses. And it's fascinating, but because they forget that, they often are very impatient with people who are not coming along in one fell swoop. Um, This can take a while. It's always a work in progress. Um, But we've got to be patient with people because they've probably been thinking and conducting themselves in a completely different manner for a very long time. And that is so true. Mm-hmm. We see it play out in the B team with with folks who are new to the model, versus some <laughs> folks who you know have about it you know six months or a year in going. How do you not understand that what you're saying is Plan A, and right. trying to gently remind people we were all there once. <laughs> I think when I first so turn, started using, go ahead, Stella. Yeah, yeah. go ahead. No, just real quick. Um, when I first started using the model, the B team wasn't available. And um, I remember a couple of times emailing um, through the contact form in the Lives and Balance site, you, Dr. Green, basically with the equivalent of, I want this fixed and I want this fixed now. <laughs> and I, your <laughs> response to me would always be like, this, this takes time. Keep at it. This takes time. And uh, so I think I would have been one of those parents, if, if I were just starting this now on the B team, I would totally be posting on there. Somebody just tell me how to do this and let me do it right. <laughs> I'm uh, dreaming of the day when um, plan B is the norm and people are raised with it and get a lot of practice at it in school, at home, on the soccer field. Um, and it's just instinct that we are um, mindful of the fact that both parties have legitimate concerns and know how to work towards solutions together that are realistic and mutually satisfactory. Wouldn't that be cool? Amen. Yes, sir. 
sounds like a world I'd like to live in for sure. In the meantime, we got this one. Let's um, turn our attention to some emails, shall we? Yes. Here we go. This one says, um, hi, I today just bought the audio version of The Explosive Child. We've been having angry, violent outbursts from my son for a few years now, some a couple of months apart, and they can last for days. Um, in the book, it says that often kids are remorseful after they've had their outburst. However, my son doesn't seem to be bothered and carries on as if nothing has happened. Would the model still apply to him? I really want to help him. I'll let one of you respond to that first. Go ahead, Tim. <laughs> oh, you're throwing it to me. All right. Um, <clears throat> well, I would say that uh, I wouldn't give up on the model with him at this point. Um, that I think his I mean, his response could be so many different things. It could be a defense mechanism to pretend things didn't go down that way, and if I pretend it didn't, then it didn't kind of thing. I mean, it could mean so much. Um, so I would instead focus on, like we always talk about, going upstream and really figuring out um, why is he challenging and when is he challenging, what precipitates these episodes and these outbursts. It sounds like they are kind of um, – they have some time in between them, so figuring out what led to them uh, by using the ALSIS, that can really help you out. Uh, that's our assessment that lists all the lagging skills on there, which are springboards for helping you come up with examples of um, when the, the uh, clash happens and when the environment makes a demand of him that he doesn't have the skills to meet. Um, so you can get your list of unsolved problems down and then start getting Start, start getting a plan in place of what you think is priority, what are you going to work on first um, to try to get that going better. Um, but I myself wouldn't be too stuck on the fact that he doesn't seem to have remorse or it doesn't have this huge impact on him. That could, that's not the meat of the information here for me. Um, yeah, those are my initial thoughts. Um, I agree with you. I think that... Um... While many kids are remorseful after a blowout, some aren't, but whether a kid is remorseful or not is not the litmus test for whether the kid will be able to participate in solving problems collaboratively and proactively. Um, I will say that by and large, adults tend to be more troubled by outbursts than kids do. Of course, there are lots of kids out there who are troubled by adults' outbursts. They are often less troubled by their own outbursts, and that can swing in both directions. Um, but the bottom line is, whether a kid is remorseful or not, um, what we really want to know is, can this kid participate in the process of solving problems collaboratively and proactively so that he ends up having nothing to be remorseful about. That's the bottom line. Mm-hmm. And if Stella, I could any add, thoughts on that? Yep. Yes, I think this parent, this parent saying, I really want to help him, is where this all begins. Because then, you know, you're looking at a parent that is, is looking for opportunities to assist this child, and that begins with that lens change 
um, which will then guide the parent to first notice what it is that's causing the violent and aggressive outbursts. And, and as Kim said, look upstream. What can proactively be addressed even before a conversation um, so that the trust starts being built? And then by the time that you start implementing the proactive conversation, um, then the kid hopefully has already noticed that, oh, this, something different is going on here. And, um, and now you're, you're really in team mode and not one individual placing their, their instructions and expectations on, to, uh, on top of the child. And by the way, um, if we are curious about how the kid feels about um, outbursts, I've mm-hmm. got a great recommendation. Let's ask. Yes. <laughs> um, and uh, you know what? It's always going to be fascinating what we might hear. Um, we might hear, you know, we've been fighting for so long that I just kind of tune it out. We might hear we've been going at it for so long that uh, I just don't care anymore. Um, We might hear, I think they bother you more than they bother me. But whatever we hear helps us understand what's going on better. Um, And so while there are gazillion possibilities for what's going on there, your most reliable tool is to find out. As I'm always telling people these days, it's not your job to know, it's your job to find out. Mm. Oh, I love it. Yeah. I'm should writing we, that Should we do another too. email? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Here's another. Um, I'm a school counselor and a mom who just finished reading Lost at School, and I'm current reading, currently reading Raising Human Beings. I'm really on board with this approach to kids both in schools and at home, but I'm wondering how young of an age this approach is appropriate for. I don't consider my son a particularly challenging kid, but I know there are some areas that are difficult for both of us, and I'd like to be able to help him better. He's only two and a half. Could you give me some more information than what I've read so far? Happily. Um, Ooh, I think I'll take that. Start... Oh, go for it. <laughs> oh, because, you know, I have a two-year-old, a two-year-old and three months. <laughs> a boy of It's been nine. a long time since I had so. a two-year-old, so you're much better qualified at this point. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Great. Um, I would say that I have done my best to use CPS since day one with him, and that is because it doesn't rely on his linguistic abilities necessarily, although that's the more language he has, the easier it goes for sure. Um, but it all starts with how I perceive what he's doing and how I perceive what his behavior is communicating to me. And I'm and when he was littler and had less language, I had to take more guesses for sure, but um, we still got farther than we would have if I had just given him the message, no, you can't do that, no, you can't do that. So I remember one time we were in the library and he was probably, oh, I don't know, 16 or 18 months at this point. And my daughter was there and there's a train table and he was very interested in the train table. And he's happily playing trains and I'm trying not to hover. So I'm a little bit back, but I can see him and he puts a train down and my daughter comes over. Mind you, she hasn't touched this train table in like four years, but is now interested in it because he's interested in it. <laughs> so, and she, she, of, of the, you know, of the 15 trains on the table, she picks up the one he puts down. Now I know because I've watched him play a lot that he's not done. 
she thinks he's done. He isn't done. He's just doing something else. He's going to come back to that train. I, I, I know this. And so sure enough, he starts, and I'm trying to make my way over there quickly as he starts throwing trains and screaming, right? And I am Classic. watching people watch me. Yes. I'm watching people mm-hmm. watch me, right? Because all eyes, right? And so I say, you know, buddy, I know you weren't done with that train. Sister thought you were done. It's okay. We can let her know. And he calmed right away, and we talked to sister, and we moved on. And I think some of those eyes that were watching me were wondering why I didn't tell him it's not okay to scream in the library and it's not okay to throw trains. Um, I had that feeling because <laughs> I had some look. But if I had done that, first of all, he already knows that. I, he, You know, like I said, 16, 18 months old, we'd already let him know that throwing's not okay. He's already experienced it at school. Something's probably hit him in the head from another kid, right? He knows. And that was not the issue. The issue didn't do it because he thought it was okay to do. He did it because he didn't know what to do. That sister picked up the train that he, he had still been playing with. And he just didn't know how to tell her that he was still playing with it. And so once we figured it out together, and there was a little bit of teaching involved there with language and how you solve problems, and it was a, a, an installment of that anyway, um, we quickly went back to being okay. And I talked to my daughter about, you know, you can have a turn. We can teach him taking turns. And how about give him a few more minutes? And she was fine with that. So, yeah. So moral of the story is, yes, you can use it with even young ones because it starts with how you perceive what you're seeing. And that will guide you along your intervention path. Very nice. Stella? Oh, that's a, that's a gem of a story. You know, I didn't I didn't have access to the CPS model when I was a new mom. Um and I remember um Dr. Green hearing you discuss some strategies to use with very young children and how even babies communicate to us very clearly. Um and I, I think back to my son's first week of life in that every single diaper change, he would just be screaming and screaming and screaming and screaming. And it was around like day five that I finally figured out, oh, the diaper's too small. <laughs> and I had to move wow. up a diaper size, you know. And here I was not like reading the cues. And I was brand new at this, you know. And um, But I always kind of go back to that. Like had I just taken a couple of breaths, and evaluated what he was trying to communicate with me, um, you know, perhaps it wouldn't have taken me five days to move to size two diapers. And I would have caught those cues a little bit earlier. So, um, you know, that's, for me, it's that taking the time to take a breath and look at the whole picture and not just react I love it. Me too. You know, um, infants have unsolved problems. Infants have concerns about those unsolved problems. Uh, Infants are relying on us, at least in infancy, to solve those problems. But we've got to pay attention to the cues. Um, If all we do in response to every problem is stick a bottle in the kid's mouth then there's a lot of problems that aren't going to get solved that way. Um, You start paying attention to an infant's cues and to what problems are causing the infant distress the minute the kid pops into this world. And you never look back. Um, Of course, 
most people would agree with that part. It's just that as the kid becomes more verbal and as the kid starts moving around more because they now are able to, you know, locomote, walk, um, the problem is that's when adults start to become obsessed with compliance and stop doing what had been working all along. Pay attention to what expectations your kid is having difficulty meeting, the situations in which your kid is having difficulties. Try, if your kid is able to give this information to you, to find out what's going on. And if not, try to read the cues and then try to work together if that's possible. And if not, you're on your own until the kid can participate with you on solving those problems. Um, you start that the minute the kid pops out and you don't look back. <laughs> well said. Well said indeed. Let's, let's do one more that's going to take us a little bit back to where we started today. This one says, I am fighting a losing battle with the mental health system. My daughter has been diagnosed with ADHD, oppositional defiant disorder, mood disorder, has been placed in a group residential home mostly because of her poor impulse control and oppositionality. She has been going downhill since in the group home and in school because she cannot comply with the rules. She is still on orientation level or a group home because she cannot follow the rules. Everything is being taken from her. Therefore, everything is being taken from her. They also suggest I don't visit or interact as much. I know this goes completely against my thought process after I learned about the CPS model, but I cannot get these types of facilities to understand Dr. Green's teaching. I do not want to lose a child I love so dearly because she does not fit in the norm of society. She is smart, funny, beautiful, and slowly I am seeing her light go dimmer. That just breaks my heart. You know, I I had during um, a, a backslide in our home um, a few months ago um, when everything just kind of seemed to flip upside down. Nobody caught the proactive cues. My child just went on, you know, just a r- aggressive rampage. Um, and I was at one of those. I just cannot understand why I have to continue to plan B my husband places. Um, I... I came to this moment of realization that, you know, were we to um, hospitalize, so in, put, put our child into um, a group home institution and, and take our hands off of, the, off of the CPS wheel, because there is no CPS uh, therapist in, in our region. Um, I, what I said to my husband was, you know, the minute that this young man comes back to us, we're going to come back to the same sort of communication issues that we have. It starts, you know, with, with us also. And so the, the work that needs to be done needs to be done by all of us together um, to help our, our child. So that the, the part of that email that breaks my heart is that she's being asked to not go there. So I, th- I think it has to be, it has to be everybody. You know, one of the reasons it has to be everybody is because there are a ton of vulnerable kids out there. Most of them don't bring a weapon to school. But bringing a 
weapon to school is just one of many tragic outcomes. Incarceration is a tragic outcome. Teenage pregnancy is sometimes a tragic outcome. Um, dropping out of school is a tragic outcome. Um, obviously, some of those don't include the loss of life of other people. But um, these vulnerable kids need all of us to be more compassionate, more enlightened about the skills that they are lacking, more attuned to the problems that are causing their challenging behavior, less focused on the behavior itself, and um, there are still way too many places that don't know that yet. Yeah. And that's a shame, but we're working on it. On that note, we're out of time for today. Thank you both as always. Fun being with you again. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks we'll for do joining this again us. next month. Yes, sir. Bye-bye. 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 B